You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Welcome, everybody. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, Welcome to everybody who's joining us this morning in all the different ways that you can. Maybe you're joining us live, maybe you're watching along on YouTube or watching later or listening to our podcast. However you are here with us, we're so glad that you are here today. Now, I've seen a number of you doing this already, but if you are with us on Zoom, feel free to chime in in the chat and let us know where you're coming in from. It's always great to see uh, how far and wide folks are joining us from all the different places. So here we are in the midst of some of the coldest days of the year here in Minnesota in the depth of winter. And this is a time my kids have been reminding me we're in third quarter now of school, which to them means uh, grueling, boring, not a lot of break in sight. So this is a time when we especially need each other, when we especially need this time together and these moments where we can be reminded of things to be grateful for, where we can shore ourselves up in the habits that sustain us. So I'm especially glad you're here with us today. So here in this community, our lives are grounded in the universalist spirit of love and hope. In this community, we listen deeply to where love is calling us next. We welcome, affirm, and protect the light in each human heart. And we act for justice with courage and compassion and humility. We do all of this as a people who are deeply committed to racial justice, as a people who are committed to building the beloved community where all can flourish here in this lifetime. So this is who we are. This is what we're about as a community. And this is the life that we're inviting you into as well. So wherever we are, wherever you're coming in from, let me invite us to connect with each other in one of the ways that we can, wherever we are. And that is through our shared breath. So I invite you into just a moment of settling your body. So this looks different for each of us, what feels comfortable, what feels right. For me, I put my feet squarely on the floor. I've got my hands holding nothing, just sitting in my lap. I take a moment to let my shoulders lift up and drop down. I like to soften my gaze or close my eyes. And then the invitation is to take three intentional breaths. So I'm gonna breathe in and breathe out so, so slowly. So friends, I have a story to tell you this morning. And this is a story about a Japanese art form called Kintsugi. Probably many of you have heard about this before. It is the practice of taking a broken piece of pottery and putting it back together using not something like super glue or hot glue, but cold. 
So taking broken pottery pieces and putting them back together with gold. Now, there are lots of stories about how this came to be. And I think it's such a great art form because it reminds us that the imperfections and the flaws that happen when we break something can actually be turned into something beautiful, can actually turn what we originally thought was so great into something that's even stronger and more resilient and more full of beauty. So this art form, there's a legend about how it came to be, right? And there, like any legend, there are lots of different ways to tell the story, but the central things that I think most of the versions of the story agree on is that it was over 400 years ago and there was a leader and he had an absolute favorite teacup. Maybe you have something like this too. I have my favorite coffee mugs for the morning. And what happened was his favorite teacup, it broke. It broke into all these pieces and he was so sad. He just wanted it back the way that it was. So he gathered up all those pieces and he sent them off to some craftspeople to work with. And they sent the teacup back when they were done and uh, it was ugly. They had like stapled the pieces together with giant pieces of metal. And when he poured his tea in it, it just went like all the way through the cracks. And he was so disappointed, but he loved this teacup. So he kept going, he gathered up the pieces again. And this time he sent those pieces off to some Japanese craftsmen and he asked them what they could do with it. Now these craftsmen were so impressed with the leader's devotion to something as simple as a cup. And so they became determined to return the cup to him, not just as good as it was once upon a time, but maybe even better. And so they started working. What? What? Jen, Jen, Jen. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I I am interrupting you, but I have something I have to tell you. I cannot even believe the story that you're telling right now connects. Did you notice this chalice? Did you notice this? Well, you probably can't see it. No, I can't see anything. Oh my gosh. This chalice, this chalice was repaired um, in a way that was inspired by Kintsugi. No this way. actual chalice that I picked this morning. And there's, there's actually a story about how it got broken and how it got put back together. I would love to tell you that. Will you tell us? Yeah. It's a little strange to interrupt, you know, worship and everything. But when you have the okay. story that fits, you got to tell the story that fits, right? Got to go with it. Okay. So this chalice is like, or was like the chalices that are in a lot of our rooms at church. And this one had been unbroken for a long time in what was, I think the third or fourth grade religious education classroom, right? And then um, one Sunday morning, um, a bunch of kids that were in that class got there kind of early and they were in the classroom and they were trying to figure out like kind of how to keep themselves occupied until class started. And there was this one kid that was in that class who always had really good ideas for fun things to do. And so he told everybody about this game that he wanted to play involved a ball and some running around. I'm just going to say, and running around and playing is a fun thing to do at church. So that's what they decided to do to pass the time until class started running around. Yeah. The whole chalice table got knocked over by this kid, the whole chalice table, everything went everywhere. This um, chalice, the bottom of it broke off and into two pieces. And um, that kid, the one who had the great idea, who always had great ideas of things that were fun, he felt so bad. And I happened to walk into the classroom right about then, and I could tell he was afraid he was going to be in trouble. He was not. He felt 
awful. And it turned out um, he started telling me and his other classmates, like, I'm so sorry. I always break stuff. I feel terrible about it. And he was really upset. Um, and his classmates were so nice to him. They were like, don't worry about it. We were all playing, you know, but he just, he really had an awful morning. I don't think he felt better for the whole morning until he left church. So I gathered up the pieces just like in your story. Right. And I um, took it to my office and actually I wish I had known the whole story because the first thing I tried to do was to fix it with hot glue because that's what I had. I'm here to tell you that fixing pottery with hot glue is not beautiful. It was kind of like all bumpy. It's not really even. So I set it on my desk and I had it there for a couple of days and I was like, oh, I'm going to bring this back. But I was hoping it would make that kid feel better when he saw it was like fixed to where you couldn't see it was broken anymore. But um, as I looked at it over the next couple of days, I'm like, that is not what it looks like. It looks like a mess because <laughs> it has hot glue everywhere. And then um, a couple of days later, I found some glitter glue, some gold glitter glue in my desk. And so I added that. And as you can see, that was the magic. That was the magic of making this beautiful. So I took it back the next Sunday, was really hoping that it was going to make this kid feel better. And it did more than make him feel better. Like his classmates were so into it. They were like, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. We have the most beautiful chalice at church. And he felt all the way better, all the way better. And, um, you know, I think we mended the chalice to be more beautiful than ever. But I think about that story every time I look at this chalice, because, you know, the thing I think, that really happened that really got mended was that kid's heart because mm. he'd been told so many times that he was broken, that he was too active, too rambunctious, you know, always messing things up. And I think something in him got healed by that experience. I really do. So anyway, <laughs> so what happens when the cup in your story gets sent back to the leader? Uh. Lauren, it's just like what happened to that boy, to that kid, <laughs> right? That like the, the cup came back and the leader loved it so much. It was so beautiful. It was better than before, right? It, it was so much better. And the thing that uh, I love about this art form is that it's not just about things, just like you said, right? It's not just about pottery or the chalice. It's about how our hearts mend or yeah. how the broken things in us mend. Right. And the thing that's so important and that you did this in repairing the chalice is that it takes time mm. and it takes attention and it takes care and it takes devotion. Right. So like when, when the craftspeople take a broken piece of pottery and they're going to do this art of Kintsugi with it, it can take almost a month to oh, put wow. those pieces back together, to let mm. it dry the way it needs to, to then, you know, add the gold in just the right way. Like it, it's not a quick fix, right? And this is like mm -hmm. our lives when we have those broken places in our body or in our heart, it takes time and care and devotion and attention. And a lot of the times we can come back stronger and more resilient with our scars as some of the most beautiful places on us. So that is my hope for us. That's mm. my hope for us. As you I'm think too. about that story, I'm so glad you interrupted me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm so Please glad you told do. this story and I had that chalice today. Oh my gosh, it's perfect. So 
while we hold this story and all of these ideas in our hearts, let's sing together. One of my all-time favorite hymns, For All That Is Our Life, All That Is Our Life, with Franco and with Fazia. Now, Franco will share with us The Way It Is by Rosemary Watola Tromer. The Way It Is by Rosemary Watola Tromer. Over and over, we break open. We break and we break and we open. For a while, we try to fix the vessel, as if to be broken is bad as if with glue and tape and a steady hand, we might bring things to perfect again, as if they were ever perfect, as if to be broken is not also perfect, as if to be open is not the path towards joy. The vessel that's been shattered and cracked will never hold water. Eventually, it will leak and at some point, perhaps, we decide that we're done with picking our flowers anyway and no longer need a place to contain them. We watch them grow just as wildflowers do, unfenced, unmanaged, blossoming only when they're ready. And my God, how beautiful they are amidst the mounting piles of shards. That's a couple snaps there, Franco. That is fantastic. Thank you so much. Or as the millennials do. It's good to be back with you. It's good to be here. It's good to be among you. It's good to be thinking about Unitarian Universalism right now as we enter this time of deep, deep reflection in the middle of winter. These words from 20th century British Unitarian poet and lyricist Andrew Story, typify many of our journeys as religious liberals. He said, 
the star of truth, but dimly shines behind the veiling clouds of night. But every searching eye divines some partial glimmer of its light. But friends, lately I've been asking, is the truth broken? Is the truth broken in pieces like shards of pottery reflected in the poem? Is the truth malleable like clay? Is the truth knowable, accessible, relevant, or real? What truth do you have access to? There's an ancient South Asian story of the blind men and the elephant. You may have heard this before. Now, each man touches a part of the elephant to describe the elephant based on the part he touches. The man who touches the leg says the elephant is like a pillar. The man who touches the tall, the, the, the tail says that the elephant is like a rope. The man who touches the tusk says the elephant is like a tree branch and so on and so on. Now this story suggests there is one ultimate truth for which the elephant is a metaphor, but the whole elephant is beyond our knowing. The one truth is a mystery, veiled, shrouded, obscured. At best, we each have access to only a small piece of it. And this access may not be eternal. Again, the lyricist says, the star of truth but dimly shines beyond, behind the veiling clouds of night, but every searching eye divines some partial glimmer of its light. Friends, we must be humble about how we explore the idea of truth. We must also be aware that truth is informed by history and tradition and community and conflict and nature and relationships. The truth is you may see me right now, Karen, 63 years young, black Unitarian Universalist minister in a box on your screen. While that is true, another truth exists. I am a creation that did not exist before 1619. There was no such thing as a black person before that. I am the creation of navigational tools of the Italian, ammunition from the Chinese and European conquest. My ancestry.com map tells me this so clearly and truthfully it tells me I am the truth you see and the truth that is hidden in my genes. As you use we deliberately encourage everyone to formulate a personal theology that reflects their moral concepts, their values and worldviews that we build ourselves. Building your own theology, a whole class in it. We study, we interpret, we reformulate, we design, we develop ways of thinking, we incorporate new information, and we are in the world in such a way that is generally our own. Think about it now. This is really unusual. A religion, a faith community that doesn't require us to believe in one thing. A faith that does not demand that we adhere to any doctrine or dogma. A faith that does not ask us to take a vow of allegiance or acceptance. We belong to a faith that's so confident 
in our ability to seek and learn and discern and make choices and decisions that we are encouraged to find our own way. Wow, that's a lot of trust to develop our own idea of truth and to develop our, our idea of meaning. Now, here's the question. Does this freedom mean that it doesn't matter what we believe? That anything goes? No, certainly not. Recall that our principle, our fourth principle, is a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. A free and responsible search for truth and meaning. That is our duty. That is what binds us. Free and responsible. Now, responsibility means being dependable keeping promises and honoring our commitments is accepting the consequences for what we say and what we do. People who are responsible are not cavalier about their beliefs or their truths. People who are responsible do not cause harm with their truth. They don't make excuses for their actions or blame others when things go wrong. A responsible truth means being held to account. One of my absolute, absolute favorite readings in our hymnal is number 657 by Sophia Lyons Foss, that great religious educator and theologian. It is entitled, It Matters What We Believe. Now, as I was reading this, I felt that it was a perfect companion to our poem today. Except I want to make one little change. One little change. Where it says the word beliefs, I'd like to make a slash and add the word truths. Let's see how it reads with that little edit. Sophia Foss says, some beliefs, truths are like walled gardens. They encourage exclusiveness and the feelings of being especially privileged. Other beliefs, truths, are expansive and lead to the way into wider and deeper sympathies. Some beliefs, truths, are like shadows clouding children's days with fears of unknown calamities. Other beliefs, truths, are like sunshine blessing children with the warmth of happiness. Some beliefs, truths, are divisive separating the safe from the unsafe, friends from enemies. Other beliefs, truths, are bonds in a world of community where sincere differences beautify the pattern. Some beliefs, truths, are like blinders, shutting off the power to choose one's own direction. Other beliefs, truths, are like gateways opening wide vistas of exploration and opportunity. Some beliefs, truths, weaken a person's selfhood, weaken their humanity. They blight the growth of resourcefulness. Other beliefs, truths, nurture self-confidence and enrich the feeling of personal worth. Some beliefs, truths are rigid like the body of death, impotent in a changing world. Other beliefs, truths 
are pliable like a young sapling ever growing with the upward thrust of life. Boy, she could spin a phrase. And what truth there is there. Friends, freedom from dogma and creed may sound simple, may sound easy. I've heard people say, oh, I go to that church, you believe anything you want to believe. No, that's not true. That's not true. Not if you're responsibly searching for truth and meaning and doing the work. But it's not easy. It was much easier for me to be a Jehovah's Witness and wait for Armageddon and just sit around than it is to be a Unitarian Universalist. It is work to be a UU. And the path to our beliefs and our truths are never direct. They're always changing, often contradictory, and often painful. And as that great sister Lizzo says in her song, truth hurts. Every new idea, every old reflection, every scientific discovery, every podcast has a potential to bend and flex what we thought takes work to parse and discern. Over and over, truth breaks open. We break and we break and we open again. We watch our truths grow just as wildflowers do. Unfenced, unmanaged, blossoming only when they're ready. Truth that springs from the exertions of a reasoning mind has been the rallying cry for our movement through the centuries. But now, you know, I wonder, are we all really looking at the same light as the lyricist describes? Are we touching the same elephant? I don't really think so. So we have to get real. It's nice to contemplate now. Yeah, I'm a nice person. I want to contemplate the one truth. It's very attractive. It's nice to contemplate even universalism. For many of us, such contemplation is spiritually nourishing. Amen. It's nice to open ourselves up to the mystery, to reach, if we can, beyond the veil. And sure, there is a primordial unity that perhaps binds us all together. But we live right now not in that primordial stool that binds us all together. We live in a diverse nation and an even more diverse world. There are people touching different elephants, truths colliding, truths competing for airtime, truths storming the capital, truths maintaining the middle ground. And one of the most challenging things we have, one of the most crucial challenges facing human beings today is learning to live humbly and gracefully in the midst of our many truths. When some people's truths threaten us and want to destroy the systems we believe in. Many of us don't have the skills to live humbly and gracefully in the midst of many truths. I know I don't. I include myself in that default position. I do not have those skills. When I refer to living humbly and gracefully in the midst of many truths, particularly over this last year, we have to think about what it really means. Does it really mean to have the capacity to encounter 
a truth that is different from your own and to stay open to that truth just long enough to discern its value to the person who holds it and its potential value to you. And then is there value for you to integrate that truth into your own worldview? Now we've all had examples of that. We went to college, we met so-and-so, they changed our mind about such and such. We have an experience, we travel, we changed our mind about such and such. Our truth becomes more expansive. But friends, all truth is not responsible truth. If someone's truth is clearly irresponsible, if someone's truth demeans and harms, it is not of value and it must be challenged. If someone's truth oppresses me, wants to kill me, wants to limit my humanity, that truth must be set aside as dangerous truth. Yeah, sure, it's nice to say that I'm an open-minded person. I'm an open-minded Unitarian Universalist. Yes, I am. I want to walk humbly and gracefully in the midst of many truths and live in such a way that I may be transformed by encounters with another human being with a different truth. I remember years ago, I sprained my ankle, Spokane, Washington, General Assembly, mid-90s, needed to get a cab to take me to this remote clinic that would take my insurance. The only cab driver I ended up in was a white supremacist. He told me he was when I got in the cab, but he needed the money and I needed to get to the clinic. So we bared time with each other for a couple of hours. We exchanged views. I heard his truth. He heard mine, but we left with respect, but vowed not to kill one another on those two hour ride. We did listen. I did learn. He did learn. I know he learned because he said, huh, but that was about as far as it went. I was willing to be transformed by that encounter and he was willing to be transformed by that encounter. Sure, I'm open-minded, but as my mom used to say, I am not boo-boo the fool. I am not open-minded to QAnon, whose truth says that Jewish lasers are being shot from outer space to start wildfires in California. I am not boo-boo the fool. One truth, many truths. Are there any truths? Could it be that what passes for truth is simply our deep-seated emotional loyalties rooted in family, religion, culture, and politics and sustained by reasoned, designed reasoning only to win arguments? Is it possible? that what passes for truth, I'm saying it again, I wanna ask you, is it what passes for truth simply our deep-seated emotional loyalties rooted in family, religion, culture, and politics and sustained by reasoning designed only to win arguments? Given the role of emotions, given the flaws in our reasoning, maybe we can never say for sure what truth is. We must at some point though, anchor ourselves somewhere. We must at some point know who we are, where we stand and where our loyalties lie. We must at some point make difficult decisions. When we see irresponsible truth, our responsibility is to stand firm in that deep well of human goodness for the common good 
and encourage us others to join us. That is what our faith demands of us. Blessed be and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text FIRSTUNIV, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.